Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plan, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Bev Wilson, AICP, Associate Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. What caught my attention about Bev's work is the breadth and depth on topics such as housing, transportation, civic tech, equity, land use, climate change, and more. Through his teaching and publications, Bev's work is notable for bridging the academic practice divide in the planning field. Bev, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Courtney. It's good to be here. Your work brings together some really interesting aspects of planning that aren't always found together, namely high-tech and community development. Tell us a little more about your work and how you got interested in it. There's been a lot of discussion lately in planning circles and in broader society about new technologies and what they might mean for the way we live our lives and interact with one another. One of my main goals is to research and advocate for more transparent and democratic use of data and technology in urban planning and governance. I've also been involved in trying to jumpstart a civic technology community in Champaign-Urbana that aims to bridge some of the gaps between public and private sectors, as well as institutions like the university and individual community members. I've always been interested in technology and planning. My first job out of college was actually as a, working as a programmer. I was repairing IT systems for government and private sector clients in the late 1990s, leading up to the whole Y2K frenzy, for those of you who are listening who might be old enough to remember that. But I think the current debates that we're having right now in planning surrounding big data, smart cities, are actually best understood as an extension of much older conversations in planning about the role of technology more generally, and also expertise. I prepare my students by teaching them hard skills, but I also encourage them to critique existing practice and to propose solutions. I think that only by directly engaging with these emergent technologies um, can we hope to make them more responsive to the needs of communities and individuals. In your work, either from the academic point of view or more in terms of practice, Why is this so difficult? Because I feel like it's not happening as often as it should. Well, I think part of it is uh, a lack of familiarity with the subject matter, the technical aspects. Uh, One of the things that I've been uh, working on through my teaching is to build capacity in the planning department that I'm a part of. Basically, um, well, teaching students the basics of data science some programming and some uh, basic um, skills that they can use to be not only savvy consumers of data and data visualizations, but also to, to, I think, more confidently engage in some of these debates that we're having in planning and, and, again, in broader society. I think that if you don't If you're not familiar enough with the technologies, then it's easy to be overwhelmed. It's easy to feel um, maybe a little frightened about some of the narratives that are out there regarding how big data, how um, algorithms, how new technologies like autonomous vehicles and artificial intelligence are going to change the way that we live and and the way that we experience. The, the city, for example. 
So it sounds like for you it starts with school, but you probably would agree it doesn't end there, right? So what about those of us who aren't in school anymore? Uh, I think for, for practicing planners who are out in the field, I believe APA ha- is working. I, I've had some interactions with the technology division. There's been a lot of discussion within the division about ways to um, achieve some of the same goals in terms of educating um, practicing planners, people who are not currently in planning school, to, um, again, become more familiar with some of these technologies, become more familiar with some of the issues surrounding open data, big data, um, so that they can, again, participate more fully in the kinds of discussions that are going on. I think that it would be, um, it would behoove us as urban planners to not cede these kinds of um, decisions and discussions to the computer scientists, to the engineers. And the only way that we can, um, I think, have some confidence that these emerging tools and technologies and the data that are being collected are going to be used in a way that um, furthers um, the public interest in addition to being used to further business goals or to advance the agenda of local government, for, for example, is to come up with new frameworks and come up with new strategies for um, working with technology, working with data, understanding um, how that, the, the nuts and bolts of that, but also thinking about new frameworks. And I think that's where civic technology really has a lot of promise. I think civic technology is it really builds on a lot of the existing scaffolding within urban planning. A lot of the more collaborative um, approaches to urban planning, uh, but doing so in a way that brings together not just technologists or people who have programming skills, uh, but also making sure that you also have in the room uh, people who really understand um, the issues or the problems or maybe not even problems but some of the the needs and um, aspirations of a community or a neighborhood and once you get those people in the same room one of the central um, I guess goals or or arguments of civic tech proponents is that that's when you can really start to build solutions and um, think about things in a different way that are less overwhelming less Um, frightening uh, and um, really help to ensure that what's being done in this arena is responsive again to the needs of um, communities uh, individuals as well as the business the business community technologists and local government so a recent example in this vein is your work on heat vulnerability can you talk to us a little bit about that sure Um, so with some funding from the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy, I designed and built a, the ChicagoHeatVulnerability.org website that launched a couple months ago. And basically, this, this site focuses on heat waves and rising temperatures more generally as one of the many climate change impacts that we expect to see in many of the more heavily populated areas in the U.S. and beyond. So typically, when we think about climate change impacts, we often imagine floods, we think about hurricanes, we think about sea level rise, but heat-related illness and heat-related deaths are expected to increase as we move forward. If you 
if you consider average global surface temperatures, uh, they're trending upward. And according to NASA, 16 of the, la- of the 17 warmest years that we have on record have actually occurred since 2001. We're already seeing the impacts of this. This is not um, something that is pure conjecture at this point. In 2005, there were over 2,500 heat-related deaths that were recorded in India over the course of about a week. Back in 2003, over 14,000 people died in France during the summer. And right here in in Chicago, in in Cook County, back in 1995, there were over 700 deaths um, recorded over the span of about five days, I believe. And again, last year, there were about 150 heat-related deaths across the U.S., with, with cases in places as diverse as Las Vegas, less surprising, um, Philadelphia, maybe a, a little more surprising, and Portland, Oregon. So the Pacific Northwest, perhaps surprisingly, um, has been one of the, the areas where this is um, emerging as a, as a real issue for, for, for planning, but also for, for public health as well. So the website aims to document the change and sort of, as you described, the hard data aspect or hard skill data, hard data aspect, but people aren't affected equally, right? Right. Definitely not. Um, So what the site really aims to do is to help users think about who is most vulnerable to heat-related illness and death during a heat wave and to provide an accessible lightweight web-based platform for visualizing how the location of those groups has shifted over time in the Chicago metro region specifically. And basically, we started by scanning the public health literature to create an index that captures sensitivity to heat as well as adaptive capacity in 1990, 2000, and 2010 at the census tract level. And then we map that index for all tracks in the seven counties that make up the Chicago metropolitan area. And I, I want to unpack some of that language a little bit, uh, talking about sensitivity and adaptive, and adaptive capacity. So for example, if I'm an elderly person with heart disease, then I have high sensitivity. But if I'm also an individual who's not exposed to high levels of heat, if I live in a part of the region or a part of the city that doesn't get quite as hot during one of these heat waves, then I'm less vulnerable. Or if I'm an elderly person with heart disease that has the means to uh, access and, and to really pay for air conditioning, then that also lowers my vulnerability by way of um, a, a higher adaptive capacity. And so what the site really does is it tries to um, to center those different dimensions of vulnerability and to also document using this methodology that draws upon some previous studies from the public health literature um, to really sort of serve as a point of departure for uh, conversations that uh, planners should be having and, and are having with emergency managers, with public health officials, to figure out a way to um, better tailor and target our response, whether it's mitigation activities from a land use planning perspective, or if it's figuring out um, ways to uh, address this from an emergency management perspective, thinking about where existing cooling centers are in the city, for example, versus where 
the most vulnerable populations are. And given that people do move around, it's important to take, I think, a longer view in terms of where those most vulnerable populations are um, at any given point of time. And it also depends on how you, how you are defining vulnerability. And one of the things that we are consciously trying to do with this site and with the tools there is to tailor this approach to think about, well, what exactly are the factors that would make uh, someone or uh, would make, say, a household particularly um, likely to have negative um, impacts in the event of, of a heat wave. You hit on something that I see as an important role of planners, and that is understanding the bigger picture, including understanding and explaining unintended consequences. Do you have other experience with this work? Would you agree that that's an important role of planners? What are your thoughts there? Well, I think it's impossible to anticipate all the consequences of a policy or a planning decision at the outset. That's just one of the realities that we as urban planners have to have to accept and, and deal with. But I don't think that that means we should resign ourselves to inaction either. And I think that one of the main purposes of research, certainly in an applied discipline like planning, is to evaluate and critique with the aim of deepening understanding and improving planning practice. So studying... Um, what's been done in the past, what's been tried in the past, what's, um, what's the current state of practice, and then evaluating that to try and get insights that can be used to improve upon existing practice. To How can we tweak what we're doing to get us closer to our, um, our goals and our aims, whatever the, the focus might be? I think that's an interesting point. Sometimes I feel like the loop doesn't completely close, that planners try something, um, for example, instead of maximum parking requirements, or instead of minimum parking requirements, now we're going to have maximum parking requirements. It's kind of rolled out across the country uh, for people who are interested. And I don't know that we ever go back and actually look at the efficacy of a new regulation or a new policy. Uh, Are you aware of places where that's happening? and it's just not reaching me? Or do you think it's something we need more of? Well, I think it's certainly something that we need more of. And again, I think that generally this is the, this is the kind of question or the kind of issue that planning researchers um, are generally more in tune with, evaluating what's working on the ground, um, doing policy evaluations, etc. And uh, I think that this is one of those areas where we as an urban planning community can do better in terms of bridging that divide between practice and research. I think that academics um, don't always do a very good job of communicating the implications of their research and certainly don't always do a great job of connecting what they're researching with practice. And so I think that is, at least in my mind, also a contributing factor to um, what you mentioned in terms of the breakdown of that feedback loop between um, experimentation and um, improving and enhancing planning practice. 
Yeah, and I I don't mind being critical because I have two degrees in planning and have been a planner for almost 20 years, so I say all of these things with love, but I feel like the planning field is not necessarily associated with innovation. Um, For example, disruption is a term that's almost passe in the tech world. I think planning needs a whole lot of disruption. I think planners at different points in history have been looked to as the visionaries. And right now it doesn't feel that way. So do you have a reaction to this idea that innovation, disruption, vision, um, how it's working in the planning field or not? Well, I think the term disruption is um, a little new to me. And um, I think I would agree with you that complacency is dangerous. And I think that... um, as urban planners, we need to constantly be thinking about, even if, even, I think this is true of planning practitioners as well as planning researchers like myself, we need to constantly be asking ourselves if what we're doing is uh, really aligning with what our goals are, if, if, if it's getting us closer to where we want to be in terms of um, understanding important questions or issues, or moving us closer to achieving agreed upon um, community goals. Um, so disruption, I think on the one hand, you could argue that disruption is where planners live, right? I think one of the things that, one of the things that I teach is I teach urban history and I teach urban theory. And one of the things that I try to emphasize is this interplay between um, urban history and urban theory. Uh, what happens really informs and in, in, in many cases um, shapes theory and the way that we think about urban places, cities, how they work, how they should work. But I think that one of the one of the insights that I've taken away from teaching that course for many years now is that urban planning, at least historically and arguably now, has been largely reactionary. So there's, um, there's a crisis or, uh, or there's an emergency. And so we have to drop everything that we're doing and we have to address that. And so it's difficult to, to step outside of this almost firefighting um, mentality or, or, or state and so from that perspective, I think that urban planning is not unfamiliar with disruption. It's just that we've been respondents to disruption more than, um, I guess, the, the sources of disruption. And I think that what you're talking about is something that's a little different, being less reactionary and being more proactive about the way that we um, the way that we practice, the way that we research, the way that we think about um, planning and communities and cities. And I think it's difficult, certainly from the perspective of an urban researcher, to really do that. I think I'm, I'm not sure what that would look like. I know that there's been a lot of research about new technologies like autonomous vehicles, but a lot of the, the really, I think, exciting work um, when people think about technology is things like artificial intelligence, which is really outside the, the purview of, where, of what urban planners do. And I think that researchers, researchers can put provocative ideas out there. But in terms of disrupting 
um, disrupting the establishment in terms of practice. I'm not sure. I think that the divide between the planning academy and, and planning practitioners makes it difficult for, for researchers to really do that. And quite frankly, I think in many cases, it's difficult for uh, planners who are practicing and say working in a local government environment to do that because there's uh, there may be political constraints or um, just constraints in your work environment that make it difficult to um, rock the boat, so to speak, or to um, experiment even. So I'm not 100% sure um, that I have a good answer for, for, for that. You mentioned that you teach and have studied urban history and urban theory, and you mentioned that planners operate in a political environment. What do you notice that's different, perhaps, uh, about the impacts of operating in a political environment historically versus now? Well, I think historically, if you look at the emergence of urban planning as a as a field or as a profession, it's arguably driven by this need for, on the one hand, implementation authority. So planning presupposes an ability to act or some... Um, implementation authority, the ability to, 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 to do things on the ground. And I think the, on the other hand, historically, there's also been a great interest and um, appeal um, in terms of legitimacy, a source of legitimacy for, for urban planning, what urban planners do. And I would argue that, that those, those two considerations really help us to understand why the planning function um, historically, um, has become very closely aligned with government because that's, I think, a logical way to get access to those things. That's a logical um, way to for urban planning to um, have that implementation authority and to um, gain and, and sort of maintain uh, legitimacy. I think that when you shift forward in time and, and, and talk about and talk about what's going on um, today, we have a situation where trust in government is waning. So I think that close association with government can sometimes be problematic for planning and for planners. It could lead to a credibility problem of sorts in in some cases. You also have um, this perennial question of if you're interested in disruption or if you're interested in bringing about positive change, what's the best way to do that? Is it is it more effective to operate within the system or to operate within the establishment? Or is it better and more effective and perhaps you're not possible um, to do that within that um, existing system? Do you have to step outside of... Um, the establishment in order to, to really have have an impact. Uh, and I think that these questions are all, um, these are not new questions, but I think that they have taken on new significance. Certainly today, when we look at the politicization, uh, when we look at how science has become political in a lot of ways, I think that takes on new significance today when we look at how climate science has been handled in uh, political discourse Somewhat related, I think it's difficult for most people to really understand the temporal aspects of development, a term that you use to describe one of your chief research interests. 
Why do you think that's such a difficult concept and what are the impacts on how our communities look and function if that's something people struggle with? Sure. Honestly, I think most people don't have the luxury of taking the long view. Most of us are tuned into our daily routines. We have really busy lives and so it takes a conscious effort to reflect on how our neighborhoods and broader communities are changing and they definitely are changing. Sometimes the changes are large enough to catch our attention, but often that change is incremental, quiet, and really goes unnoticed. So I think perception of change is part of it, but I also think that path dependence is very real and very consequential in planning. By path dependence, I mean the fact that decisions and choices that were made in the past, they constrain, they, they limit the set of options that are available in the present. I think this applies to local governments, it applies to community groups, and all other actors who are out there pursuing their own agendas. Some of the work I've done asks how past decisions or how the decisions of others affect outcomes as diverse as municipal fiscal health or land use change. So are there spillover effects or feedback relationships that can deepen our understanding of, say, how urban housing markets work? But I think a a perennial challenge in doing this kind of research, at least for me, has been collecting longitudinal data. Local governments have gotten better about archiving and making information publicly available. But for a long time, the assumption has been that there's really no need to maintain anything other than the most current parcel database or GIS files. Um, Temporal aspects of development, I think, is a good example of, of jargon, which I think one of your other questions. I don't know if that's where you were going to go next, but... Yeah, definitely jargon, I would say, is a necessary evil. Um, For example, some of your work is focused on the connection between affordability and mobility. Those are terms that might not resonate with people immediately, even though they may be directly affected by it. How do we communicate complex ideas to people in an effort to improve communities? Well, I agree. Uh, jargon can be problematic, but it's, I think it's most problematic when it's used outside of the spaces where it emerges. So the language, the language that I would use in a journal article, for, uh, for example, is necessarily going to be different from the way that you speak in the classroom or the way that you communicate during a public meeting. And we've, I think we've all experienced this um, almost code switching when we, for example, attempt to explain what we do to relatives at Thanksgiving. So maintaining an, an, an awareness of who we're talking with is important. And I think having some examples in our back pocket really helps as well. So you mentioned a, a study I published last year. And what we were really trying to do there was to model the relationship between, as you said, housing affordability and mobility, while accounting for network connections between origin and destination communities. And that's taken directly from the, the abstract. But if I were at Thanksgiving dinner, what I would say was would be something more along the lines of, I'm trying to understand what makes someone decide to pick up and move rather than commuting back and forth for work or school over ever-increasing distances. So does the cost of renting or buying housing matter more in different parts of the country, or does it matter more to different types of households? And in theory, a household will continue to commute within a region until the commuting costs are larger than the costs 
writ large of of relocating. And so that's one of that's I think at the core of what that particular study was trying to explore and examine. But again, it's framed in a, a much different way. It uses a lot of technical jargon. But um, again, I, I think that you're absolutely right. We we all of us, whether we're practitioners, whether we're researchers, have to be um, aware of of who we're communicating with if we want to be successful in in communicating. Were there some surprising findings in your study on affordability and mobility? Anything else we should know about? Well, I think one of the more, well, I'll, I'll let you decide whether it's surprising or or not. But one of the things that we we found was uh, people are moving less than they have in the past. And there's some, some of the explanations that have been offered for that are that the benefits of relocating have diminished over time. That picking up and moving from Chicago to, say, Los Angeles or uh, some other metropolitan area doesn't necessarily give you a higher quality of life or more money in your pocket. And I think this connects back to some broader uh, debates within urban planning, some other sort of issues and questions regarding um, polarization of the workforce, income inequality, and um, there's there's a lot going on in that study because we're we're trying to use these new measures of housing affordability that HUD compiled and um, released data for that explicitly try to account for transportation costs when comparing housing affordability. And one of the things that we were fundamentally interested in was whether households seem to be aware of those differences, or if there's some um, information asymmetries there. Uh, And again, that's perhaps jargon, but whether people are fully aware, if they have, um, if they're in tune to the differences um, in terms of buying housing in one location or in one region versus another, given that housing is more than just how much you're paying in rent or a mortgage. And, and again, looking at the, looking at whether these um, location-based affordability measures do a better job of helping us to understand mobility, in this case, relocation behavior or not. So are you saying, for example, someone might be considering two locations or moving to a new location and they may not account for the fact that one location they could get away with having one car for the household and in the other they're going to need two because of where the people in the house are going? Right. So um, it's not just commuting distances. It's also access to transit in terms of uh, understanding which households are moving. And and this one of the things that's detailed in, in that particular um, article is that these effects vary in terms of um, household type, whether there are children pl- present, uh, but also household income. And I mean, it makes sense in terms of um, what kinds of trade-offs households are willing to make in terms of the type and... Um, location of of the housing that they're purchasing and the transportation options and the transportation costs that go along with those housing choices. So who could help with information asymmetries? 
I assume you'll say planners, but someone else surely must be responsible too. Sure. I think that certainly HUD is trying to do some of that just by collecting this information and making it available um, and also explicitly encouraging researchers uh, to explore the data, to uh, critique the data, to make use of the data. I think here in Chicago, organizations like the Center for Neighborhood Technology have done a lot of work in this area as well, looking at the uh, cost of transportation and what that means for the the bottom line of um, household budgets. And I think that it's an issue like this is, uh, it's really fundamental. We all need shelter. And this housing is is a cross-cutting issue with urban planning. And I think that um, we, this is another example of how technology can be useful in um, raising awareness and um, maybe taking some of the research and some of the insights that come out of, um, of studies like this one. And again, the work that I think the, that CNT has done has been um, really pioneering in a lot of ways. They were um, working on this well before the, the HUD data was available. Uh, I think these um, kinds of initiatives uh, are really um, what needs to happen to get um, to make make it easier for households to make informed decisions about um, these kinds of trade-offs. There's actually a lesson there. At least I kind of follow CNT's work from afar, and I think you're largely talking about their H plus T index and subsequent right. subsequent work. Um, so before that was walk score. Um, and I loved, as a planning consultant, learning about walk score and incorporated it into my work even, you know, however, eight years or so ago. And now it's completely been, I'll say, co-opted by, I think, the realtors. And now it's part of what you see on the MLS. And I think that's actually a beautiful thing because it means that was a valuable uh, bit of data that was able to be communicated to the public. Uh, it was meaningful to them, and it's informing people's choice and where they live. I don't know if you feel similarly. Yeah, I think that the reality is if you've got a good idea that has some potential benefit for the public, it also helps if, it, if there is an angle for it to be useful for the business community or for government. Because again, getting back to our earlier conversation, um, institutional buy-in and backing is, is really important in terms of getting traction for ideas or getting visibility for ideas. But at the same time, I think that there needs to also be spaces where, um, where individuals, where community groups, um, residents can come together and also participate in the decision-making processes. And again, this is where um, the civic technology aspect of some of the more recent work that I've been doing uh, really comes into play. Tell us a little more about that. What are either what's happening now or what do you see as sort of the next in the civic tech world? Sure. So I guess I'll start with, um, I guess, giving a my um, understanding or my sort of take on what civic technology is. And then I'll talk a little bit about some of the work that I've been doing in the classroom and outside the classroom. So civic technology is a relatively new um, approach to technology, to community engagement, 
and perhaps even community development. There's been, um, I think, a, some. There's been some discussion in the literature that has been critical of civic technology as really it's the vehicle for tech for tech companies and for government to uh, advance their own agendas. But I think when civic technology and its um, central tenets are taken seriously, it's more than that. And civic technology is really about using data, using the internet, using um, mobile platforms, cell phones, as a way of democratizing access to information and using that information to address problems, to pursue goals, or to even just as simple as bringing um, a community together. And I really started thinking about and, and, and getting into civic tech technology maybe two years ago. And one of the first things that I did was I took a look at what was happening here in Chicago. Chicago has a one of the most visible and I think one of the most successful civic tech communities um, anywhere in the country. You may be familiar with the Shy Hack Night event that happens every Tuesday night um, just down the street, Merchandise Mart. And really, this is... Um, I think an arena where, again, you have technologists, you have programmers, you have software developers, but you also have representatives of local government. Um, City of Chicago's chief data officer is uh, a regular there. You also have um, just regular people. You have residents. Um, you have kids. You have teen- I've, I've seen teenagers who, who come and and, and participate in these events. But really, it's, I think, akin to um, collaborative planning processes. There's uh, an opportunity to bring new questions or new um, ideas to the group. And it's really um, grassroots in terms of its organization. There are a couple people who really handle the logistics, and but it's really, um, I think, driven in large part by participants. Anyone can come and set up a breakout group or propose an idea. And the idea is that if you get people with technical skills in the same room with people who have um, really in-depth knowledge of an issue or a question or something that, that they want to see done for the benefit of the community or for the public, which is where the civic part comes in. And I think it's really important that the civic comes before the technology in civic technology, because I think oftentimes we get lost in the details or certainly in the technical details, or we center or privilege the technology and we forget about the people. And so one of the things that civic technology aims to do as a framework is to um, elevate or to make sure that we don't lose sight of people, that regular people who don't have programming skills or who are not um, government employees or who are not well-connected can learn about technology, can have a voice in the way that technology is used, and can... Uh, it's 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 provides a framework for building digital literacy. It provides a framework for engaging with um, with youth. So Shy Hack Night has been a model that we've um, been working on since January, replicating in Champaign Urbana. Um, 
in the spring of 2016, uh, I organized a couple of meetings with um, mostly um, local government officials, um, regional planning organization, public health department, cities of Champaign-Urbana, as, as well as um, some people with uh, technical skills in Champaign-Urbana, just to talk about and sort of put out there this idea of civic technology as something that could be useful for uh, improving quality of life where we live um, and really taking a lot of, of inspiration from what's been done here in Chicago and elsewhere around the country. And we've been meeting uh, weekly, um, similar to what, what goes on at, at Chi Hack Night. Um, and we've been trying to uh, reach out and, 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 and get more people to attend. A couple of the, uh, I guess, projects with the most momentum that uh, have started in Champaign-Urbana thus far has been one project looking at, um, at polling places and um, sort of voter, uh, making it um, more convenient for voters to cast ballots, thinking about um, where people cast ballots and what um, what policies for um, early voting um, and would be most beneficial in terms of um, maintaining and perhaps even increasing voter turnout, making it easier for people to make their vo voices heard during um, on election day. And this has, I think, been a really interesting project. It, it involves data analysis and visualization, um, looking at where existing polling locations are, where people actually vote. A lot of people, like myself, don't go to your uh, polling place. I vote near where I work. And so thinking about these spatial relationships, thinking about the, the timing of when, vote, when people vote, who's more likely to vote early. And in Champaign-Urbana, we have a large um, student population. So this becomes, um, I think that that adds an additional layer of complexity to that. Uh, but thinking about if you were going to change the where um, early voting uh, happens, or if you were going to change uh, the location of polling places, where would you do that to... Um, I guess, make it easier for, for people to vote is one of the projects. The other project is really working with um, the Boys and Girls Club in Champaign. And it is focusing on developing really an online marketplace. So you have teenagers who are interested in uh, doing things like mowing lawns. You have, in many cases, elderly um, households who don't have the, the physical ability to maintain their lawns or to um, take care of other smaller tasks around the house. And so one of the other projects is really leveraging technology, building uh, a mobile application and sort of a web platform to connect these teenagers through the Boys and Girls Club with um, households, um, elderly households um, more specifically, but also anyone can use this service. Um, in the same way that, say, an Uber uh, connects uh, people who are looking for rides with people who have cars. So I think that, that those are two examples of projects that are um, underway and have gotten, um, have, have some degree of momentum in Champaign-Urbana. But I think that this model is, um, has a lot of promise for navigating some of the 
some of the anxieties that I've seen in the discourse, um, in the planning discourse about what these new technologies might mean for um, urban planning and for communities. Yeah, I guess in my view, I think about if I order diapers and book plane tickets, you know, in online, then um, there should also be, you know, a planning uh, component to that. So I guess I, I think we have a responsibility that doesn't change, you know, whether it's in a virtual space or in-person space, but I think it's something we should not only get on board with, but but lead. So those are interesting examples, and I think the two you brought up are kind of beyond the traditional planning realm, but um, just shows that people who are concerned about the public good, um, efforts in the public interest, that technology has a role to play. Yeah, and I, again, I don't I don't think that the civic technology framework is really a new thing, or really that. Un- it should be familiar to, to urban planners because it's really about collaboration and it's about bringing people to the table and it's about working together to establish goals and to figure out a way to move closer to them that, um, yes, involves making use of data and, yes, involves making use of technology, but doesn't put that before the... Uh, the goals and objectives that are arrived at through this kind of, of dialogue and, and, and collaboration. So, Interesting. So stepping back a second, I talked earlier about the breadth of your work. Um, I'd like to talk for a minute about scale. You've worked on things from the neighborhood scale to mega cities across the globe. How does scale influence your work, or um, what interests you about a particular project that's related to scale? I think scale is fundamental because it frames the action, so to speak. Depending on the questions that you're investigating or the planning issue that you're trying to address, you could completely miss important connections and relationships if you're looking at the wrong scale. So I think your goals need to inform the scale at which you're working, but the reality is that scale also shapes the work itself. So, for example, it's, it's feasible to survey everyone in a neighborhood, but it's impossible in a megacity like Mumbai. Connections across scales are also important because the nature of neighborhoods, of the neighborhoods where we all go about our daily lives are impacted by what happens at the city scale, the national scale, the regional scale, etc. So I think um, scale is, um, as I said, fundamental to what we do, thinking about um, those connections and space. Is there something you've seen, an issue you've seen that transcends scale? Um, I don't think so, actually. I think that um, pretty much everything happens somewhere. And even if it's in cyberspace. And so spatial relationships or I think, I think spatial relationships are important no matter what kinds of issues we're looking at. And so a lot of the work that I do is um, informed by geospatial data, mapping. And so I think about spatial relationships a lot. And I think that for urban planners, spatial relationships matter, whether we're engaged in physical planning or if we're thinking about 
economic development and supply chains or industrial clusters, or if we're operating more in the community development field. Uh, If we're thinking about um, immigration, for example, those are spatial relationships. We were talking about, we were just talking about mobility. Immigration is another um, example of mobility that has pretty clear um, spatial dimensions and has also been, I think, another um, topic that has gotten a lot of attention in popular discourse and political discourse and has has some real, um, it's a timely issue, it's an important issue for urban planners. Similarly, I noticed your work is very broad in terms of context. Some of it has focused on rural communities um, up to very, very urban communities. I'm wondering if you have something to share with us about the different types of places you've worked and what has stood out to you. Sure. Um, so I, I am perhaps a bit of an anomaly. I'm in an, I'm in an apartment of urban and regional planning, but I am also very much interested in rural communities because I grew up in one. I grew up in a really rural place in, in North Carolina. The county has about 20,000 people. Um, so I think that rural communities, to start there, are understudied in a lot of ways. I think that, and I've seen I've seen this personally uh, through a course that I teach. I teach a class on small town and rural planning um, at the university, and I've seen in a community with a couple thousand people some of the same um, issues that you would expect to see in a much larger place like Detroit. So I've seen the impacts of deindustrialization. Um, And I think that one of the things that some of us may not be aware of is that a lot of the issues and a lot of the challenges are the same, whether you're planning in um, a small town or in a rural context that we would typically associate with um, a larger place. And I think there's certainly bringing this back to um, contemporary um, sort of discussion and, and issues. There's, I think, much has been made of the rural-urban divide in terms of um, politics um, and, by extension, policy. Um, and we certainly saw this during the last election with a lot of the rhetoric about, um, a lot of the populist rhetoric and uh, talking about rural America as being left behind. And so I think that we ignore rural communities at our peril. I think that urban planners, um, generally speaking, should do a better job of um, understanding rural places and the ways that rural places and urban places are connected. I think there's a lot of uh, connections between rural places and urban places. So an obvious one would be food. Where where does food come from? Or where does energy come from? Even if you're talking about renewable energy, and we're not going to set up large solar arrays in downtown Chicago. So, and we're probably not going to do that in the suburbs either. So where are we generating energy and you know, moving beyond coal fields? Um, and there's also the obvious connection between rural and urban, rural, rural and urban places with respect to um, employment, commuting patterns, as we were talking about um, earlier. 
and where people are um, finding jobs these days. So I think it's important to have a, an appreciation of um, connections across the rural to urban spectrum. Yeah, similarly, I'm from a small town and uh, live in Chicago now. Probably none of my friends here or colleagues know what a CAFO is, but I think they should. So if you're concerned about the environment and you look at it at a regional watershed or state level, uh, even the farming practices in another part of part of the state should be on your mind. Similarly, I think we don't pay attention to enough enough to why people move in terms of family connections. Um, I think you could look at that in terms of international immigration or in-country migration, even following a family member who's been incarcerated or losing a job or getting a job. I think there's a, it's just a very complex issue, and I appreciate the comments you made about understanding those connections. Yeah, I think that certainly when you're talking about migration out of rural communities, place attachment figures prominently. I mean, it, even even in the most um, distressed rural areas, like the one that I grew up in, uh, people still have a very strong connection to um, to their communities. Quite often people own land there. And I think this builds on and, and um, is an important corollary to the study I mentioned earlier, where we're looking at things like housing affordability, access to, tra- to transit, and access to opportunity, really. I think that it's important to understand that while those are important factors to consider when studying mobility or the decision to relocate or not, there's also often um, personal factors or, or, or considerations that are not readily apparent that... Um, also influence those kinds of, of decisions. Community, really. So what do you think the field of planning is getting right these days? What are you inspired by? So in terms of what planning is getting right, I think that fundamentally planning is a big tent with people working on a variety of issues. And I think back to when I first discovered and then started learning about urban planning, that was one of the things that appealed to me most it's um, it there's a lot of flexibility within urban planning to do a lot of different things, and that can help to sustain a career. It can help to maintain interest. It can allow you to um, connect with people with diverse interests, but still um, work closely with them. And I think that's uh, I think one of the fundamental strengths of our field, and I think this also partially explains the positive outlook for the field in terms of employment growth. Um, and in terms of what inspires me, I, I really like working with technology. I like bringing that into the classroom. I think this allows me to, to tinker, to explore in this arena, while drawing upon some of the skills from my previous work experiences. I also find that working with technology allows me to connect with students in a different way. And a lot of times, um, students will respond differently to uh, what I'm trying to communicate or what I'm trying to teach if I can um, introduce it in a way that um, uses technology or as a touchstone. 
So for example, you just teach by group text. There's no uh, in classroom anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, so a, a couple of examples of how I've used technology in the classroom. I've had a couple groups build um, or build slash use uh, mobile apps to collect information akin to a windshield survey. So there's a group of students last semester who um, used their cell phones to conduct a vacant and abandoned housing survey in Paris, Illinois. And they collected that information, took photos of the properties, mapped them. And that was that, that approach is hopefully going to be used in other um, small towns in the county and in the region. I've been working with U of I Extension on that. I've also had a group of students. Um, I actually teach a course on civic technology. And last fall, what the, the students in that course did was we worked with the Champaign County Racial Justice Task Force. They drafted FOIA requests and collected data from the various police departments operating in the county, from the sheriff who oversees the correctional facilities, and also um, from the circuit clerk. And they built a web application that allows interested users, but also the members of the Champaign County Racial Justice Task Force, to have some some data and to, to really visualize some of the trends in terms of who's being incarcerated in the in the county jail, um, how long they're being incarcerated, what sort of bail um, requirements are being set, um, and then to really sort of dig deeper into the racial disparities that exist in the criminal justice system, not only in Champaign County, but um, specifically where um, where we all live. I think it's important for students to to have these kinds of grounded experiences outside the classroom. And I think it's even more useful when we can do something um, in, in Champaign-Urbana or in Chicago. How about the flip side? What would you like to see happening more in planning? Where do you think we're kind of falling short? Well, I think that we should all be talking with people who are not like us. I think that's something that's missing in our society more generally at this point. I think for academics, this means connecting with researchers in other disciplines, but there's value in talking shop with those who are not knee-deep in the culture of planning. I think this also applies to colleagues and neighbors who have different politics or different points of view, different life experiences. I think there's a lot to be gained just by um, stepping outside of our, our comfort zone in that way, whether it's in a professional context or in a personal context. And I think that by doing that, those kinds of, of experiences, those kinds of conversations uh, will inevitably enrich um, what we do professionally. I think that's a great point, a good reminder. I really want to appreciate you for spending your time with us today. I feel like I learned a lot about how we all can think about connecting research and practice Thanks. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at